This is Pastor Devin, and I just want to say thanks for joining us, and I hope and pray that this message is an encouragement to your life today. Okay, we are in the last part of our series entitled The Four Cups. For those of you counting, yes, we did a five-week series entitled The Four Cups. Uh, That math doesn't work, but uh, the first week, of course, we talked about the promises of God and how... We can't have the promises of God unless we have Jesus. Every promise of God comes through and by the person of Jesus Christ. And then as we moved into the four cups, we talked about this idea that God's timeless promises, timeless, precious promises, they flow through and around these four core promises that we've been talking about out of Exodus chapter 6. This morning on the drive into church, I was talking about the four cups with uh, our son, the oldest, uh, 13 now. And he was reciting to me the cups. Yes, Dad, we know the cups now. The cup of salvation and sanctification. He's rattling off the stuff for me. So I hope that you've been paying as much attention as my 13-year-old has been paying attention and can rattle them off as well. But we just want to go to the text this morning. Uh, just to, For those of you that have not been with us, this may be your first time here uh, or you haven't been here during this series, let me just give you a refresher really quickly. The Israelites celebrating the Passover, the deliverance from the Egyptian bondage. And out of that celebration, they... Uh, they enact this, this feast that they call Passover. And during Passover, they read through a scripture portion and they drink four cups of wine as they read through this portion and as they read the promises, the, the uh, cups represent a new promise. So we, we pick it up in Exodus chapter 6. You guys could probably recite this passage by memory now. Therefore, God tells Moses to say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you. From being slaves to them, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. We talked about that last week. And then finally in verse 7, the promise of taking you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then, and I like to say, and only then, will you know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Four promises. First one, I will bring you out. We talked about this a few weeks ago, this idea that God's first desire is simply to get you out from underneath the yoke of bondage. Um, he doesn't need you to do anything, become something, train you, fix you, make you neat and tidy. He simply needs to relocate you and get you out. That first promise is predicated solely upon believing and confessing Jesus as Lord. It's that simple. In a moment, this cup is all about God's grace. Salvation is a gift, not based on works. Otherwise, we would start to take credit for the salvation experience. No, it's a free gift. Then the second promise, I will free you. At first glance, this may seem like the same promise. Didn't he already do that? No, because not only does God need to get you out of Egypt, but he has to now get the Egypt out of you, right? He's gotten you out of slavery, and you still have a heart of a slave, thinking like a slave, believing like a slave, acting like a slave. You can be a Christian and still have habits and temptations and issues to the degree that they disrupt your Christian walk. And anybody say amen to that? Truth be known, most Christians never get past the second cup. So their entire Christian life is made up of, man, I'm just a mess. I just keep working on my issue. And all I do on Sunday is just repent of all I've done for the last six days. And God, listen... God has more for you than that. To the third promise, I will redeem you, which statistics prove that 87% of Christians never fully experience this promise. That's tragic. It's also frustrating because if you can't get this one, you won't get to the next one. 
God not only wants you out of Egypt, he not only wants Egypt out of you, but he also wants to put you back to your original intent, what he designed you to do. And that is the promise of restoration. He wants to restore your life. Last week we looked at that. If you weren't here, I'd recommend that you get that. And then finally he says, I will take you as my own people. This is powerful. The promise that God wants to make you a people. Up to this point, been very individualistic. You, 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 and now you're no longer a person, but you're a people. It's about making a difference with the right people. God connecting you to a group, to a team, to a church. Listen, God never fulfills his best in a single person. But he always does it through a group of people. Always. And it's then and only then, friend, that you will even know what God is all about. It's only then that you fully realize all that he has for you. And I, I think there are scores of Christians that, that reject that idea because, quite simply, it's too hard. It's work. There are people that reject the idea of Christianity because of what the church has created in their minds the church is about. And God says it never happens in isolation, but it happens in a people. And if you're currently not living a fulfilled life, I'm not talking about a problem-free life. But if you're living life and it doesn't feel like you have purpose, your life doesn't feel like it really counts, that you're not making a difference, listen, then you haven't experienced all that God has for you. Okay, so what what do the four cups mean for us today? Of course, you've heard me talk about them and through them, what each cup represents, which promise it represents for us. And I just want to maybe frame them a little more uh, fully this morning in terms of how they interact with Connect as a, as a church, how, how they speak into our programmatic elements. Because here's the deal. All that we do here is wrapped around the four cups. Everything we do here revolves in and through around these four promises. The first one, of course, the cup of sanctification, which we've referred to as the promise of salvation, which it is. But here, I just want to show you what this means for us as Connect, because we've developed everything we do. From the very beginning, we just said, let's, let's just not overcomplicate this. How many have ever been a part of church and it just felt complicated? just felt hard. You know, Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The church sometimes has made it hard and heavy, right? We want to make it easy and light. The cup of sanctification for us is represented in our weekend services, okay? Meaning that we don't view church on Sunday solely for church people. You say, oh, I thought this was for me. Yes, we hope that church people enjoy it, they learn something or challenged by it, but that's not what drives what our weekends entail. So we try to organize our weekend services in such a way that they're meaningful for new people, for unchurched people, for de-churched people, people that at one point in their life attended church, but somewhere along the way they gave up on it. Very simply, the weekend is for people that are disconnected from God. So we try to make it a warm, welcoming environment where people feel safe, where they can understand what we're talking about. If they don't understand what we're talking about, who cares? So that you feel comfortable inviting your friends because, listen, programs don't bring people. People bring people. Okay? So that's everything we do. By the way, it's working. In the first seven months of our church in existence, over 70 people have committed their life to Christ committed to that first cup of salvation. Yeah, you can give the Lord praise for that. It's working. It's working. 
And then we move to what the Jewish people call the cup of deliverance. So what do you do next? Because God wants to free you and remove a heart of slavery. And a lot of people have grown up with the expectation that that happens on Sunday as well. So I not only get saved, I get delivered, I get set free, I get discipled, I grow, I go deeper, and you handle all my problems on Sunday. (laughs) How many know that's a lot of expectation to happen in about an hour and 15 minutes, right? So deliverance, the cup of deliverance is lived out in the life of this church through our connect groups, okay? Small groups, the engine, the backbone of our church, the real place for you to grow, study, go deeper is in a small group. I mean, sure, I do a lot of study and spend a lot of time so that on Sundays we can teach and feed the sheep. But the place that's even more meaningful, where you can get honest, where you can take the mask off, where you can let the wall down and say, help me, I've got some issues, is in the safety of a circle of friends. People that are going through the same thing. We currently have about 60% of our congregation going and attending connect groups. I think that's amazing for a church seven months old to have that many people involved in that. And then we move to the third cup, what the Jewish people call the cup of redemption. Remember this promise, all about restoration, restoring your life back to your original intent. How do we facilitate that here? We have a process that we call next steps. I talked about it a little bit last week, and we just simply encourage and invite everyone that calls connect home. We just need three Sundays. Three 45-minute sessions immediately following service. We provide child care for it. We provide lunch at one of them. And and we take you through a systematic process. Now, listen, it's not a perfect science. It's not foolproof. But it's certainly better than just coming on Sunday and expecting all of that to happen in your life on Sunday morning. We prompt that. We want to define and confirm who you are, what your giftings are. And then beyond that, help you determine if this is the people that God wants to join and connect your heart to. Next steps. It happens the first three weeks of every month perpetually. Today, I'll be teaching DNA, which is our infrastructure, our governance, our polity, our doctrine, the healthy habits of a believer. I'll do that. Immediately following service today, and you just get to decide, is this a place that God is connecting me to people? God's best for your life is not just for you to keep the bad stuff out and call that good. We start living our lives saying, if I can just keep the bad out, then that's good. No, God has called you to something much bigger than that. And I want you to go on the journey with us. Very familiar passage, John chapter 10. Most of you could quote it. I I just want you to hear this with new ears today, with fresh ears. It says this, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, my purpose is to give life. In all of its fullness, listen, the devil has a plan for your life too. Don't be fooled. And most of us have either lived it out or some of us are living it out right now. He has a purpose to steal from you your dreams, your relationships, your joy, to kill every bit of your potential and destroy literally everything in your life. That's his plan for your life. But Jesus said that I want to give you life, life more abundantly, life to the full, So that you just don't crawl into heaven limping your way there and go, I made it. Oh, thank God I made it. Is that enough? Well, here's the question then. If you recognize that he's calling you to more, that he wants to provide a life of fullness, here's the question. Then why don't we pursue it? 
Why do we settle for less? And I just want to give us a few reasons why we would settle for less. Three reasons, problems that prevent us from pursuing God's best in our lives. Number one, we let our past cripple us. We let our past cripple us. Our sins have been forgiven. We're going to heaven. And yet we still allow the devil to continually remind us of our past. And and most of us still feel defined by our mistakes, by our poor choices. Things that have happened, the pain, the hurt, some tragedy, and we still see ourselves through the lens of the past. To the degree that every time you find the courage to start to step out, you immediately hear this voice. Who do you think you are? Remember what you did? What what are you doing? Reminding you of your inabilities, and we allow that voice to convince us that what we did is who we are and who we will forever be, and it defines us forever if we will allow it to. Our past. We allow our past to cripple us, and that is not God's best for your life. Maybe you can relate with David. David wrote this in Psalm chapter 38. He said this, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. I am bowed down and brought low. Maybe that describes your life. Even now, some of you are sitting here now, and all you can think about is what you've done and how you've disappointed God. And God wants to lift you out of that. He wants to set you on higher ground. Second reason we settle is this. We let our past cripple us, and we let culture define us. So, You're living your life in accordance to a playbook or a script that wasn't written by God. And here's the deal. You already know it. If I came to you and said, are you living your life in accordance to the script or the playbook that God has written for your life? Most of you would say, no, no, I'm not. So the question is, which script are you living by and who wrote it? Because you've either fallen prey to a trap or you were lured away to a counterfeit version one that you thought would make you happy. One that, from an outsider's perspective, they even told you would make you happy. But it wasn't God's best. The world made it look good. It was enticing. Culture defined for you what was good to pursue. So you tried career. You tried making money. You tried being known. You tried exploiting your talent. You climbed the ladder, and when you got to the top, it wasn't what you thought it was going to be, nor was it what they told you it was going to be. Parker Palmer, in a book called Let Your Life Speak, helped me tremendously with this idea. I've given this book away dozens of times. Just real quickly, his story. Parker Palmer was in the world of academia. He was a professor. And then he started to pursue further on in that world and eventually became the president of a university. And as the president of a university, he found himself miserable because what he was really called to do was teach. But he allowed the world of academia to dictate and drive what he pursued. He wrote a, a, the first book he wrote was called The Courage to Teach. And that's basically the journey back from the president's office back to the classroom. It's a wonderful book. And then the second book that he wrote is this book here called Let Your Life Speak. Let me just read to you what he writes. Vocation does not come from willfulness. It comes from listening. I must listen to my life and try to understand what it is truly all about quite apart from what I would like it to be about, or my life will never represent anything real in the world, no matter how earnest my intentions are. That insight is hidden in the word vocation itself. 
which is rooted in the Latin for voice. Vocation does not mean a goal that I pursue. It is a calling that I hear. Before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I must listen to my life telling me who I am. I must listen for the truths and the values at the heart of my own identity, not the standards by which I must live, but the standards by which I cannot help but live if I'm living my own life. It takes time and hard experience to sense the difference between the two, to sense that running beneath the surface of the experience that I call life, there is a deeper and truer life waiting to be acknowledged. That fact alone makes listening to your life very difficult counsel to follow. The difficulty is compounded by the fact that from our first days in school, we are taught to listen to everything and everyone but ourselves to take all the clues about living from people and the powers around us. We respond to the pressure of culture that is constantly lying to you and trying to define who you are, or in some cases, redefine who you are. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says this, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I'm trying to still please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. You want to find fulfillment, then you're going to have to stop allowing culture to determine your life, define success for you, and dictate what you pursue. You've got to find what God has planned for you. Finally, another reason why we just don't pursue this, and it's this, we try to do it all alone. We try to do it all alone. Let me just ask this question. Why in the world would you try to do it all alone? Why? And the answer is, because you tried it with people, and people are a pain. (laughs) By the way, That's the devil's plan for your life, too. Because you you thought he was just trying to mess up your marriage. No, don't be so short-sighted. He was trying to mess up your marriage so that you would never trust anyone ever again, so that you would live your life all alone and unfulfilled. He was up to something so much bigger. He was trying to get you to mistrust people, suspicious of people, guarded, believing the worst in people, putting the wall up, never letting people in to the degree that you've convinced yourself that life is better if you live it alone. And I'm telling you, that's a lie. It's a lie. Let me show it to you in Scripture. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. There was a man or woman all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So he made money. He had accomplished some level of success, right? And yet, still discontent because he was doing it all alone. I just want to share with you the the promise of cup four. The Jewish people call it the cup of praise. I like to joke and say, well, by the fourth cup, of course, it's the cup of praise. Yeah, of course. (laughs) All you spiritual people just got a little rustled there. It's okay. Loosen up. It's actually more than that. Listen, they call this cup the Hallel. Hallel is just a Hebrew word that means to celebrate. It's where we get the word. We said it earlier, hallelujah. The yah part of hallelujah means God. So hallelujah just simply means to celebrate God. But it means more than just celebrating God in a song or with music or with praise. It's much bigger 
for a Jewish person, we think of it just to kind of in a moment of praise, not to them. To live a Hallel life, to live the cup of praise, is to live a large life, a fulfilled life. So you live a Hallel. You celebrate life by living it for something bigger than you. Not problem-free, but a life of meaning and fulfillment to know that it's counting, to know that it's making a difference. Listen, I want that for you so badly. My heart aches for those that settle for something less than that life. Look look at the promise again, Exodus chapter 6. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. The first clue is this, to living a Hallel life. It's going to require you finding a family. Finding a family, finding a church, finding a team, finding a place. It's not just enough to find out what you're good at or what you're called to or how God designed you. No, you have to then connect to something and someone beyond that. Huge, that's huge for you to understand. You have to find a family. Then not only do you have to find your family, but then God steps into the middle of that. Look at the rest of the verse. And I will be... Your God, God literally steps into that, steps into your life, partners with you, and now you do something that matters, that's making a difference on this planet. Now you're a part of something that God is involved in. You ready for this? You ready? It's then, friend. It's then and only then that you find the true meaning of life. Well, of course, that's your opinion, Devin, because you're a pastor. Of course, We're only going to find fulfillment if we're helping to push your vision forward. We're helping to serve your church, right? Of course, that's what you would think. Well, it's much bigger than that. Abraham Maslow in 1943, psychologist, sociologist, actually, you could teach this, discovered something that most of us learned in Psych 101 in school. Something called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, right? It was a, a motivational theory in which he discovered that every person does things based on the fact that they have innate needs. And they act out to fulfill those needs. Let me just give you these these needs. He originally came up with five. And then there were some other psychologists and sociologists that came along. And not Christian. These are just people studying human behavior. Okay? And they come up with, with three more. And so there's eight total. Right? I just want to look at them real quickly with you so that you know this is... Okay? First one was this, physical needs. And that is the need to breathe and eat and drink water. We all have physical needs. You are fulfilling that need by sitting and breathing right here, okay? Secondly, safety needs. You have a need to be protected. You have a need to make sure that things are safe, okay? Third, we have what we call love needs. All of us, listen, need relationship. Not want. All of us need to feel loved and to experience those feelings, The fourth one is called esteem needs, the need to be affirmed and complimented. I'm proud of you. You can do it. We all need that, okay? What's interesting, those first four are referred to as the deficiency needs. They're just there to keep us alive. It's not until you get to the next four that you realize why you're on this planet, and they call those needs the fulfillment needs. Ironic enough, the fifth one is this, cognitive needs, meaning that all of us have the need to understand stuff. It's why we stop clicking when we come across the Discovery Channel or the Animal Planet. We go, oh, I didn't know that. Right? I do. Right? It's why we like documentaries. It's why we ask questions. It's why our kids wear us out with that question. 
Why? I don't know why. Why, Daddy? Why? They have to know. It's a need to grow. It's a cognitive need. The next one is this, aesthetic needs. This is the need for things to be beautiful. It's why we like beaches. It's why we like mountains. It's why we love painting landscapes. It's also why we paint our walls a certain color. And then we buy accessories to complement them. Right? I grew up you know, with a mom that loves to make sure that everything looks right. And on Mother's Day, I just thank you, Mom, for making sure that everything looked right, neat and tidy, to the degree that now I'm OCD. But, <laughs> and I thank you for that, too, because I have to err on one side. I'm going to err on the side of things being right and straight and together. Right? We have this need for things to be pretty. Now, that's subjective. What you think is pretty is different than what I think is pretty, okay? The next one is this, self-actualization needs. Now, leave it to a scientist to come up with this term. Let me just tell you what that very simply means. It just means that we have a need to fulfill our potential. And a need to realize all that we are, to win, to become the best at, to overcome. Some of us have a, a little more dose of this need. It's called being competitive. Any competitive people in the house today? Okay. The rest of you are dishonest. It's okay. I'm sorry. No. Competitive. We, we want to... Check this out. He thought that this was the ultimate need. And for years, they actually taught that this was the top of the chart on the pyramid of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's what they taught. But they kept finding that humans would still come up lacking desiring something else, and they discover that there was something greater than self-actualization. Let me say it this way. There is something greater than you just meeting your own potential by yourself. And as they kept studying human behavior, they came to realize that people had another need, not only to realize their own potential, but to take that potential and to leave a legacy, to make a mark, to do something that matters that impacts people's lives, that changes lives. It's what we were talking about this morning as we pass it on to baby jacks. A need. That's a need. And they called it transcendence needs. Now, those of you that were part of our integrity series, remember the six things of integrity? Connect authentically, operate in reality, results, engage the negative, increase, always be growing, and transcendence. Webster defines transcendence as this. Living a life beyond yourself. You move beyond caring solely about you, your needs, your security, your esteem, and you found a way to go beyond it. God has something for you to go beyond yourself. And he wants to put you in a place with some people. I call it ultimate fulfillment. And it can only happen when you drink the cup of praise. It can only happen when you find a family and do something together that's making an eternal difference in the lives of people, lasting way beyond yourself. So how do you drink from the fourth cup? A few simple thoughts. Let me just say this. All of these messages lead to this place, and I don't want you to settle for anything less than this. It's God's destiny for you. Okay, here we are. This is how we get there. Number one, it begins with a calling. It begins with a calling. In other words, every one of you has to realize that you are a part of this. Of this. You know what that means? That means that, it, that ultimately it can't happen the way that God intended unless you decide 
to join. To join us. That every one of you needs to be a part of this. No, 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 Devin. You're the called one. You're the preacher, bless God. you got the call of God on your life. That's the way they say it. Even preachers say it. 20 years ago, I surrendered to the call. I gave up on having any fun. That sounds like fun. Awesome. Sign me up. No, no, no. Serving God's the best thing I've ever done. It's not just for me. Listen, it's for every one of you. Every one of you. God has a call on your life. Every single one of you, God has a call on your life. And some of you need to start saying it. I'm called. I'm called of God. I got a call of God on my life. And you do. may not be full-time ministry, but there's a call of God on your life. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God saved us, and then he... All right. That response is exactly how you live. That's how you live. That's how much you believe it. And you wonder why you just find yourself going, there's got to be something more. God saved us, and then he called us. Somebody believes it. To this holy work. We had nothing to do with it. It was all his idea. A gift prepared for us in Jesus long before we knew anything about it. I want you to start, you need to start thinking that way. I'm called. We've gotten this calling thing way out of whack. People think, unless I'm in full-time ministry, I'm not called. No, no. You're called. So what's the calling? What's the calling? Here's the calling. I want to make a difference. Very simply. I want to make a difference. That's what your calling is. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, You're a difference maker. You change the environment. You're a thermostat. You bring light into darkness. Your presence and Jesus in you changes the atmosphere, friend. You are called to make a difference. Let me just tell you, listen, people will lose their way when they lose their why. You will lose it when you don't know why you're on this planet. You wander around dealing with your own issues. You never start to live beyond yourself. You will lose your way when you lose your why. You got to know you're called. I don't care what your job is. You're called by God. Secondly, it stands on a cause. Okay? And that's just to clarify the fact that you're not just called to play the guitar or write a bestseller or climb the corporate ladder. No, God's got more for you More more than what humans call human accomplishment, right? Your calling is to make an eternal difference, not just move your life forward. Your calling is based on something that counts, something that matters. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work that was assigned to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Question for you, is it fulfilling for you to just simply be able to tell others the good news about the wonderful grace of God? In other words, you use your job, you use your family, you use your house, you use your money, you use your talents. Yes, have fun, enjoy life, but ultimately God gave you those things so that you could make an eternal difference. Because... You're not really doing anything until you're making an eternal difference. You're called. You want to make a difference. That's in you. But then you need to be doing something 
that makes a difference. I want to make a difference doing something that makes a difference. At the end of the day, the only things that matter are the things that matter in eternity. I want to make a difference doing something that makes a difference. Here's the third one. And then it spreads from me to we. From me to we. You can't do it. It's impossible. Sure, you'll accomplish some things, but you certainly won't accomplish all that God has for you. You can't find God's best unless you find your tribe, your peeps. Find your team, find your place. I mean, even Jesus... He comes out of the desert, out of the wilderness, and not long after that, what's he do? He starts finding some guys that want to do this thing with him. Hey, come with me. Do this thing with me. Stop, come here. He starts finding a group. If Jesus needed to find some people to do this thing with him, something tells me that we might need some people in our lives too. You cannot get God's best until you get connected. John Maxwell says it this way. There are no Lone Ranger leaders. If you're alone, you're not leading anybody. You're just out on a walk. And we've had a lot of people out on walks telling us that they were leaders. Here's here's the good news. We have about a third of this body right now serving in different capacities, on different teams, different gifts. There's about 60 plus people that serve on an ongoing basis, making a difference. Why? Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Because two are better than one. Why? Because they have a good return for their labor. So one plus one doesn't equal two. One plus one equals ten in the kingdom of God. Sure, you can get simple math done by yourself. You can do addition all day long, but multiplication happens when you get on a team working in tandem together. So I want to make a difference doing something that makes a difference with people who want to make a difference. Listen, listen, if you just, if you just want to come to church, we'll provide a seat for you on Sunday and we'll pray for you and love on you you, God knows you know I love praying with you and loving on you. But ultimately, we exist as a church to make a difference, doing something that makes a difference with people that want to make a difference. John chapter 15. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciple. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. It's amazing what that little S does. I've told you this. Why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. In other words, we bear fruit together, showing ourselves to be his disciples in his joy, that our joy would be complete. Your joy won't be complete by yourself. It's then, and only then, Let me just say it this way. As simple as I can say it, you'll never be happy until you're doing something that is making an eternal difference with a group of people that want to make an eternal difference. It's as simple as that. Okay. Now, I just want to conclude this series with a big ta-da. A big reveal on Mother's Day. I'm ready. I want this to be an encouragement to you. There are... uh, 14 steps 
in the Passover process. What they call the Seder. It's the order in which they walk through the Passover, okay? They do first and foremost the first cup. Cup one is the first thing they do, okay? And then they eat bread and they tell the Passover story, the deliverance from the Egyptians. They read through that passage of Scripture. They eat some bread. Then they take the second cup. And then they have supper. And after they have the Passover lamb, they then drink the third cup right after supper, okay? Watch this detail in Scripture. This is the night before Jesus was crucified, the night before he goes to the cross. Jesus is sitting and he's having the Passover meal with his disciples. And he's walking through these 14 steps. This is not the first time they've done this. They've, you know, they know the order, okay? Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Eating bread is the second thing that happens after the first cup. So the disciples know exactly what's happening. They've started with the first cup. Jesus takes the bread. He breaks it. They eat some bread. They talk about scripture for a little bit. Verse 27. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and he offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. Now, Matthew did not include this in his description of this this, uh, experience. Luke did. Luke in chapter 22 said this, after supper, he took the cup. So we know that this is the third cup. Okay, we know this is the third cup they're getting ready to drink because that always followed supper in the Seder, in the order of Passover. Watch what Jesus says in verse 29, and after they, after they drink the third cup, listen. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Which means, Jesus did not finish the Passover. It means that the fourth cup never got drunk that night. Why? Well, the disciples got to be thinking, wait, we're not, we're not done yet. We haven't finished the Seder yet. Now, Jesus stops and he says, we're done. I'm not drinking the fourth cup. Why? You ready for it? He said it. Did you see it? Maybe he didn't catch it. Here's what he said. Jesus himself will drink the final cup with you and me in heaven. All right, I'll celebrate. Woo! One day, Jesus is waiting for you and me to get to heaven, and he has a cup, the cup of praise, the promise of fulfillment. I don't know if you know much about how heaven works, but the Bible says that we, the church, are wed with him. We are the bride, he's the groom, and we go to a wedding reception called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at that marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus is going to lift that fourth cup, the cup of praise, and he's going to say, welcome home, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. Because the ultimate fulfillment is to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. I'll end with this invitation. Revelation chapter 19. Blessed. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let me say it this way. Let me just say it to you this way. Don't miss the party. Now let me say this. While you're here on this earth, because he came that you could have life, life eternal, but he also came for you to have life in all its fullness here. Don't miss the party here either. And God calls you. You're called. You're called. You're called. You're called. While you're here, don't miss the party because I don't want you to miss the party there. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. 
If you want to join us on Sunday, we meet at 10.30 a.m. right next to Wilson Central High School. Or check us out online at connectchurchtn.com. Thanks so much and have a blessed day.